This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tommy, what do we got? Well, today we're going to look at something that um, you even said, oh, I don't know how this doesn't get as much attention as, as it does. And uh, with all the, um, I don't want to say nuclear tension, but with some of the tensions or some of the, uh, what you're hearing about what's going on in Ukraine and that people are worried about what Putin might do. We're going to talk about a time in history where um, the world almost could have gone to nuclear war, but didn't. And most people didn't even know how close we were. And we're going to talk about the uh, Able Archer 83 exercise, which took place in November of 1983. It was uh, basically a war ex- exercise that but almost led the Soviet Union to think it was a real nuclear attack getting planned by NATO. And they would get, they were preparing to pre, pre-strike our, our first strike, basically. Yeah. Like very close. Uh, very again, close. No, like yeah, bombers were ready to go. Like that's it. No, they already had bombs loaded on planes. Yeah, like, loaded on the planes. They were ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm reading a book about it right now. It is just, it's shocking. First of all, I think a lot of this more, the more of this is going to come out considering the fact that, you know, the most of the files about this were only declassified in 2015 with the remainder of the classifications coming out in 2021. So this is still, you know, even though this happened so long ago, they just formally declassified the rest of the documents. You know, really in the past six years, did we come to find out how close the world got to complete clear Armageddon. And then we always, you know, when we teach this, you and I, we always get into Cuban Missile Crisis and what a big deal Cuban Missile Crisis was, which it was, you know, we're not going to deny that. But this was 1980s nuclear technology versus 19 early 60s technology as a different animal altogether. And this really, as we will mention in a little bit, the context to this, the, you know, the history surrounding it and really the feelings that Soviet Union had towards the United States at the time and the United States towards Soviet Union, really this atmosphere made it almost blow up. I mean, we, we would not be here right now. It was probably like the closest since the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's what a lot of people argue. There are some um, historians that can say, now it wasn't that as big as people thought there were going to be safe places, you know, safeguards put in place. There was a hotline and stuff like that that was put in place after the Cuban Missile Crisis. But it wasn't just Able Archer 83 itself that led to this near nuclear war, nuclear accident, there was a lot of other factors kind of like that led to it. I yeah. think that's where we should start. So a lot of that starts, they, a lot of the articles I wrote, they said they start almost like two years earlier in May of 81, dealing with something known as Operation Ryan. I'm sure yeah. you saw this a little bit, right? And it was basically more or less that the Soviet Union, a lot of these general secretaries in the Soviet Union, KGB um, chairmans, they just they believed from their espionage for that the United States was preparing a secret nuclear attack on the USSR. They had this paranoia, so they were already going into this with this mindset, and a lot of this all was brought about because of Ronald Reagan. Reagan is an mm-hmm. elected president, and they're just worried about Reagan. That they're basically saying, "Listen, Reagan is unpredictable, and that he could push the nuclear button at any moment." And that's really how they saw Reagan and the Soviets. And again, a lot of this is declassified. We didn't know this going into this. But the Soviet Union was afraid of the United States, just as you know, there were Americans afraid of the Soviet Union at the time too. Like, when are they just going to push the button and just like go for it? Even though it's not that simple. And it's not just a push button and everything's over. But you had a lot of these um, intelligence officers that are saying, listen, this is, it's going to happen. And 
a big thing with this is because I was reading a couple of articles about this. Is they, they all they all talked about it is that the Soviet leadership was still reeling from World War II when when they had didn't suspect the Nazi invasion, yep, like the 41. Nazi tournament out, out of nowhere. So they were still like saying they would they had this paranoia even about that that at any moment you know their enemy is just going to attack and we have to be ready. We have to strike first. That's yep. really what was going on this time. Also, the only thing you bring up about you know we're talking about Brezhnev and Andropov. Um, who eventually takes over for Brezhnev when he dies. You know, the guys that are in charge at, in the Soviet Union are old World War II vets. Like, these people fought in World War II. Yeah. Uh, they were, well, not directly, I mean, they were already in higher positions uh, under Stalin. But that's why there's that old mentality, because they were around when uh, Soviet Union was attacked in 41. So that's why there's this mentality that comes from it, because these guys are so old. And, you know, come, Brezhnev obviously was so old and not well that he winds up dying in the early 80s. And then Andropov that takes over, he also, um, Yuri Andropov basically takes over and he's already sick, right? So he doesn't last long either. But this Operation Ryan you talk about is exactly a direct response to Ronald Reagan rhetoric. And the rhetoric, I mean, is when Ronald Reagan becomes president, he actually continues something a lot of people don't realize that Jimmy Carter's the one that really starts American military buildup um, in late 70s. And this stems from the invasion, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And you have Jimmy Carter gets really upset. He obviously would boycott the Olympics. And then at the same time, he starts to spend a lot more money on American military. However, that is nothing in comparison to what Ronald Reagan does. As you mentioned, Tom, like Ronald Reagan comes in with a very aggressive foreign policy. Um, you wind up cutting a lot of social programs to upkeep this this military buildup of the United States. And through this military buildup in the United States, he also speaks out against Soviet Union. And at one particular speech to some Christian organization, he winds up calling the Soviet Union an evil empire. The evil and, empire, exactly. Right. And even, even like Nancy Reagan was like, maybe you shouldn't say that. And he's like, no, no, I feel like I need to say this. And he calls them out as evil. And he goes, you know, if anybody ever has any doubt, this is the good fighting evil, and they are evil. And this kind of rhetoric really freaks out um, Brezhnev, who is current general secretary or the you know the dictator yeah. of um, of Soviet Union, and his yeah. KGB chairman Andropov. Absolutely, and it's going to freak out. The other side's calling you evil. You know that you're the bad guy. We're the good guy. And building up military. We're be the just war. Like they they're used to hearing this. Last time they heard stuff like this was with what was going on with the Nazis. Yes. Like what happened when they, then they get invaded. And during this time too, as all this is going on, we are, the United States is, are flying. This was crazy, the, right? Yeah, we're flying uh, fighter jets and we're flying bombers right up to Soviet airspace, setting off all their alarms and turning away at the last possible second. And we did this multiple times like a week. And we would also send in, we sent over 40 of our um, new like stealth, not planes, battleships. Stealth, uh, battleships, yeah, like submarines. Well, battleship, airplanes, uh, yeah, submarines. Right their coast. We were just seeing how close we could get. And we basically showed, and then we would like just surface, like, oh, hi, we're here. And it was like right off the coast of like um, the Kola right? Peninsula. Yeah, right yeah. by right, the Kermit Peninsula. And then the Soviets are like, what is going on? Like, why are they getting so close? And we not we don't know they're getting so close. So they're seeing kind of this gap in technology also. They're like, well, how, how, did the, how does NATO have this technology? We don't. We can't find these ships. These ships are getting super close to us. These planes are flying right at us, setting off all the alarms. And it was basically seeing, you know, what they could do. And they were doing this all the way also um, in Fleet X-83. I'm sure you saw this, yep. um, what was gone, where we had a bunch of um, F-14 Tomcats, right, from Top Gun that basically flew over um, Soviet military bases. 
And this, and then they just, you know, simulating a bombing run. And the Soviets, like, you can't do that. And it also showed the Soviets that, like, they basically had no defense for this. And the reason we're doing this really is because we're trying to, yeah, we're not just doing this to piss off the Soviets. We're doing no. this because we actually want to get a reaction from the Soviets because we want to see their reaction capabilities. That's this is all this was about. Yeah, that stuff, exactly. Exactly. Like we wanted if to we see. Had all right, to, what would we do? What would yeah? If this is happening, if we're attacking, how quickly will they respond? And when they do respond, what would be the first thing that that they would be going for? What would be the first movements they would do? This was really just us compiling a dossier, some of some form of a file, really, on what what what, what would be the response of the Soviet Union to any attack. Oh, wait, you're poking. The I bear. know, absolutely. Like, do you really want to say, oh, what would they do if we? What if they decided? I don't know. And looking back at it, it's like they might just decide, side, forget it. <laughs> there, this is a nuclear attack. You know, which is what almost happened. So that's what's going through the Soviets' mind during this time. And it says, I don't know, it's, it's, you're playing with fire. Well, that, a going bit. back to the Ryan thing, like you mentioned, Operation Ryan is basically the Soviet Union is saying, all right, we need to listen in on all possible radio between the allies, right? Not the allies anymore, but NATO powers. Like we are going to try to find out what they're up to, what they're talking about. And, you know, the Soviet Union really kind of creates this is um, the actual um, headquarters. I think it's in East Germany or maybe even in East Berlin in West Germany. But the idea here is to try to, you know, get as much intel as possible as to like, what are the Americans and the British doing? Like, we need to figure this out because something's not right. Something's not something's not going right. And I think that this idea of the Fleet X-83, where we're flying really, really close and then flying away to see how they react. And I think that directly leads to the Korean Airlines flight, right? Yeah, of, Korean uh, Airlines flight um, yeah, 007. Um, which again could be a podcast or something. Show this podcast out, yeah. out there about it. On September first, nineteen eighty-three, the Korean Airlines flight 007 was shot down by a Soviet interceptor. It flew over the Sea of Japan, which was flying over, over the uh, Morin Island, and it was flying over prohibited Soviet airspace. And yep. they shot it down, and it killed yep. all two hundred and sixty-nine passengers on board. One of which was a. Um, sitting member of the of the House of Representatives from Georgia, yep. Larry McDonald. He was killed and he happened to also be the president of the anti communist of an anti communist society. So there was yep. kind of conspiracy theory, you know, of the why they shoot this one down. He knew that guy was on it. Um, so that's a whole big thing. They they thought it was a bomber. So they shot that's that's, that's what it was. Yes. That's a Soviet yeah. uh, line anyway. Yeah, they were they're so paranoid at that point because of United yeah. States exercises and the rhetoric coming from Reagan camp that, you know, they see something flying that size that could be a bomber, you know, flying towards you know into their airspace so they shot it down yeah. like they they were you know for all they know they said they would shoot anything down over that airspace yeah but apparently other flights did fly through there other time it was one of those like yeah it was prohibited airspace but there were flights that flew through it or very close to it and there's some debate did it really fly in or how long was it in this prohibited airspace but yeah again that just shows their paranoia they were just so worried about that they didn't want that first strike to happen to them. Right? So they were, and they were so convinced that the Americans would attack first. Yep. What essentially happens around this time, and what really adds to that fear that Americans might attack first, and that Americans are escalating the nuclear war as opposed to de-escalating it. So Yuri Andropov becomes the general secretary or the dictator after the death of Brezhnev in November of 1982, and he starts criticizing Reagan specifically for one thing, and that is Ronald Reagan in '83. Um, early 83, winds up announcing this really ambitious and quite controversial you know, strategy called the Strategic Defense Initiative, also commonly known as Star Wars. Yes, yep. Star Wars, there you go. 
I mean, think about it though. Ironically, in 1983, at that time, Return of the Jedi was in a movie. So, well, th- apparently that's what it was. Um, Reagan watched like Return of the Jedi him? and it inspired him. That's like that's been like that's come out. He he was watching Return of the Jedi. He's like, I want that. Like we need those things. And they're like, sir, it's a movie. He's like, how do you know it's a movie? <laughs> sir, it's I, movies. He, he's like, he's like, I want it. So we're going to do that. And the Soviets never knew that. Like people said, this technology is not available. Well, you want to describe what the technology is? Well, the technology was basically satellites in outer space that had missiles on them that was going to shoot down other missiles and make like a shield. You can, I remember Googling the videos. They actually went on TV and like explained it to like the American people. Like cartoons. Cartoons, what it was going to be, look like a video game. And they were showing what it was. And people are saying, listen, this technology is decades away from what we can possibly do. And Reagan's like, no, build it. So do it. I mean, it had lasers on it. Laser yeah, guided. Like, shoot down. Yeah. It was basically going to be any missiles that, that tried to hit us, the United States, was going to be shot down. What Reagan was doing, um, what made the Soviets so scared, is that he was taking a nuclear war, which was always decided like mad, right? Mutually assured destruction. No one can win it. To now trying to actually win a nuclear war. That's, that's and by taking it into space. That was the by key. Taking it into he's space. Like taking how, it into so, space. Yeah, exactly. So he's going he's gonna to try to win a nuclear war now. So if he's trying to win a nuclear war, then he's not going to be afraid to start a nuclear war. And that's what his soldiers are doing. So even though Star Wars was never really going to happen, although there are conspiracy theories that say, no, it, it, they did build it and it is there, all the other stuff, is that basically the Soviets think that, it, that we were building it. And, and so they're spending all this money trying to keep up with it and trying to you know match what they think we're building. And they're like, we don't know how to do it because no one knew how to do it at the time. Yeah, But it's just one of those things. So this is adding to that paranoia. And then it what led to um, the 83 nuclear incident, right? With uh, Svanislav Petrov, right? You saw yep. this one? This yep, was yep, the yep. one that I, I remember hearing about. They've recently, he actually got a, uh, he passed away pretty recently, this man. Um, but they said he's basically saved the free world because um, they had a new early warning system that they were building. The Soviets and, did. The Soviets. Yep. And it reported a single ballistic missile launch from the U.S. Ter- territory. And he actually had authorization that he could launch his nuclear missiles from where he was. That they, they yep. were, Soviets were different. Like they could launch these smaller ones, but still devastating on the nuclear weapons at any time if they, if they detected a uh, launch into Soviet Union territory. And he's like, this has to be an error. He's only because he was like, it did not function before. And he's, and he basically said, why would just one missile come from the U S there had to be thousands, not one. Yeah. But then more came, right? Well, then four more did come. So people were saying, you have to launch, you have to launch. And he's like, no, this, it still doesn't make sense. And later he just said, he just couldn't bring himself to do it. Like if he was wrong, then he was wrong, but he couldn't bring himself to do it. And it was later revealed that the system did malfunction because of um, how the sunlight bounced off. It was like weather. Some clouds yeah. and some, yeah, the clouds and stuff like that, and some other satellites. But all of this is happening within just a few months of each other, right? And then Able yeah. Archer comes, and then the Soviets are like, that's it, this has to be it. So they're, they're, well, they're on one, high alert. Yeah, yeah. and one last thing before the Able Archer comes in to play this, this actual um, military exercise there's one other thing that really freaks them out, the Soviets out, is the U.S. Pershing two missiles. Basically, it's a brand new missile that could be moved on trucks. So that's the beauty of it. It could be deployed from anywhere. It's intermediate range Pershing two missile. It was hard to detect because you could move it all the time. So you didn't really know where they were. They were small enough to be moved and hidden. And essentially what it could do is they were capable of destroying any Soviet hard targets, including underground missile silos. And they could enter if they had them anywhere which they did the united states did have them in western europe they could enter 
um, Soviet airspace and actually hit targets in Soviet Union as far in as Moscow within four to six minutes. So that's also the fear here. Like, okay, if anything's coming, there's only four to six minutes. Basically, the Soviets want the U.S. to remove these Pershing missiles from um, this new technology, which was actually the, the Pershing missiles were so ahead of their time. I mean, they were like... Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Uh, not laser guided, but they were like GPS guided. They could correct themselves if there was something in yeah, front they could of actually it. Move, yeah, they were, yeah, yeah, they could like move around it. I mean, it was way. They were accurate. They, it, it was an accurate nuclear weapon too. Yeah, like that's what it was. So that, that freaked the, them out absolutely. Yeah, freaked them out more. So let's let's get into this exercise, Able Archer eighty three, and kind of talk about a scenario and and like you know what actually happened here. So you you want to take it? Yeah. So it's basically again the the NATO, right? The North Atlantic Treaty yep. Organization, um, which you've been hearing a lot about in the news. They have always done this, right? They've done these able archer activities. Happened to be the one in '83, where it's a hypothetical lead up to a war with the Soviet Union, nuclear warfare. What was a little bit different about this one is you had the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff in D.C. and the British Ministry of Defense in London, and it was a war game, right, with intended to Mm -hmm. be the blue forces of NATO going against the orange forces of the Warsaw Pact. And it involved a lot of proxy conflicts, like things going on in Syria, Yemen, Iran, escalating. So they created a whole scenario to basically explain what was going on. The scenario called for the orange forces or hypothetical opponent, right? Um, yeah. Supposedly, it, it essentially invades Yugoslavia. I think that was the yeah. first start of it. So that's yeah. the thing. It's like then the orange force, aka Soviet Union, um, on November fourth, it invades Yugoslavia. Then on the sixth, it launches chemical weapons. Uh, by the end of the day, they start using chemical weapons against other Western powers, um, and all these these things are kind of taking place supposedly before the U.S. strike is commencing. Yeah, it's supposed to examine the transitioning from conventional to nuclear weapons. Yep. Like, that's what it's supposed to, like, you know, see. And because of the other side consistently using, like you said, chemical weapons or whatever. Yep. And it's and the whole time this is going on, the Soviets are listening to a lot of these transmissions. Not all of it, but some of it. They, they're, they're basically seeing this as, like, in part of a nuclear attack. They are, yeah. NATO was simulating a nuclear attack. There was also some of the Grenada. Remember, there was like an issue with Grenada when we took over Grenada. And because of that, the United States was speaking a lot back and forth, a lot of jitter, um, radio jitter between um, U.S. and United Kingdom. And they basically misinterpreted that, that United Kingdom and the United States are planning something. It was a U.S.-led invasion in October of 83. So we haven't invaded it yet, but because we're discussing this invasion that has nothing to do with any of this right now, the Soviets misinterpret that. They're like, okay, they're going, there's a lot of radio silence between them, but they're also going back and forth. Like, they're definitely planning something. Something's really happening here. But and, yeah, and, and no we even mocked, went to DEFCON 1. Readiness to well, that's the thing. We went all the way down to DEFCON 1. Just De- so Def you guys Con know, DEFCON 2 so, yeah. is the closest we've gotten um, to yeah. nuclear warfare. That, it was, goes that counts- was Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. Cuban Missile Crisis. Yep. Yeah, this went all the way to DEFCON. But also this included real politicians. and like, that exactly. were like, Their names and stuff. That they were, they were exactly. acting it out. They were acting out this war game. They were moving, you know, and they were moving some military personnel and stuff like that. So all this was going on and the Soviets are seeing all this and they're freaking out. Uh, this is an escalation. The problem was it, it was not real. 
at least yeah. not in the not in the West, was like, you know, we weren't actually doing this, this was just a war game, but they never told the Soviets. And the Soviets were so paranoid for everything else that was going on. They're like, this is it. This is that moment. This is what the 99 red balloons, you know, this is it. It's happening. Yeah. I mean, at one point, even like British uh, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, like she took like part in this, in yeah. the exercise. She participated, like pretending like things are happening. Uh, luckily enough, though, like Reagan was supposed to do it as well as Bush, H.W. Bush. And then um, last moment, they're like, uh, yeah, you know, Robert McFarlane, um, who was the national security advisor, when he got close, he goes, maybe maybe we, you guys shouldn't participate. This might make it you too legit. The, but it was, you have other it was things to do. Yeah, because I'm sure if Reagan, if Reagan did it, I would have probably would have, they probably would have went because they already believed yeah. that about Reagan. So if then he would have started to partake in it, it, was, it would have just led to it. I, I don't know, probably. Luckily, it didn't happen. But like the Soviets respond. Then this is not just a one-day thing. This is lasting for over five days. This scenario will eventually come like with NATO resorting to the use of nuclear weapons. And then the Soviets are watching this, being like, what's going on? So, so they're mobilizing their forces in response. And that's what they're doing. And like you said before, they're, they're, going on, they're putting all their forces on high alert. They are getting bombers oh, yeah, on, yeah. The, on nuclear weapons are being yeah. loaded onto bombers in Poland. Like they are ready for this reaction. They believe that this has happened. That's it. The CIA winds up reporting later on, like, again, this doesn't get really come out until 2015, but that you had the military district in Czechoslovakia, but as well Poland and East Germany basically placed on high alert, right? You have raiding nuclear strike forces. The memorandum went as close to saying that the fourth air army of the Soviet Union bombers of the Soviet forces in Germany, right? are literally placed on 30-minute alert with loaded and ready-to-be-dropped nuclear weapons. At the same time, they also had the ICBMs, nuclear ICBM silos, were also readied. Um, and those are very difficult for the U.S. to detect. Like, those things are underground throughout the Soviet Union, so we wouldn't even find them. They were, like, a button away. But the thing is that then we start actually... So now CIA and the United States starts picking this up. We start actually picking up our own intel that like, wait, hold on, like Soviets are hardcore arming and ready to go here. And then at that point, you know, thank goodness, the assistant chief of the U.S. Air Force in Europe, uh, Leonard Perutz, Perutz, I think, he basically is credited with a decision not to place NATO forces on increased alert. Even though Soviet readiness got so close, the idea is like, wait, should we respond to it? So Perus informs his superior, who's General Billy M. Minter, of this unusual activity that's happening in the Eastern Bloc, saying like, uh, we're about to actually get attacked by the Soviets. However, he suggests, Perus suggests that, you know what, why don't we just wait until the end of this exercise? It's almost over. We have like a day left. And maybe this behavior is caused by the exercise. Maybe the Soviets are actually, not silly is a terrible word, but paranoid enough to think this is real. So he actually purposely convinces the generals to not build up the actual nuclear strike. So it, so, in the actual war game, right, Peru actually yeah. advised against responding to the Warsaw Pact military activity. So he just yeah. said, we're not going to do it. And then that, and then that ended the exercise on November 11th, 1983. So once they end that, that's crazy. And it's really crazy. I'm just thinking this now. November 11th is, was also what? Well, I don't know. What was November 11th? It's Armistice Day. That's Armistice Day from World War One. Oh, November 11th at 11. Yeah, veterans Day, so the idea of that, you know, the whole point was to, you know, the war to end all wars. And now it's also the, the end of the war that almost did end everything, right? This like simulation. But there's a lot of, um, we mentioned before, historians and others that say, listen, there was too many other things, constituency plans in to make sure this didn't happen. But then there's others, right? Like this is, um, there's a whole bunch of constituency plans for response to nuclear attack. But everything was going to happen so fast that you have to wonder, like, 
could reason really be applied in such a crisis? You have like six minutes to decide how to respond to a blip on the radar screen or and then go and unleash all your nuclear weapons. Like how could you apply reason in time like that? So like you got six minutes to decide, like what are you going to do? Yeah. If you really truly believe that bomb, that those weapons are coming, it's not like you can call and be like, hey, did you really send these or not? Like this is a lot going on. And a lot of panic and a lot of paranoia. And um, apparently they did tell Reagan about this later on, like two years later, they kind of explained it to him how close it was. And they, apparently he found it very sobering because he was kind of like, well, why would they think we were actually going to attack them? And they're like, well, sir, you've been like saying all this stuff. You call them the evil empire. Yeah. Like, they, obviously they're going to think that we're enemies. Ronald Reagan was brought into a, a prior training a year before where they actually brought him into a situation room and they put him on the, first of all, they put him on a special airplane that's supposed to stay in the air for like 70 something hours without refueling. It's like they, you know, the United States got ready for a nuclear attack where in case anything happens, Ronald Reagan could be put on this command center that would basically like, you know, fly around the United States that's being destroyed underneath by atomic weapons. And, and they kind of put him through that exercise. And on this plane um that has this like base you know of operations on it they kind of showed him the scenario of they showed him a map like a basically like a computer map and they're like all right it's starting and then he just wound up seeing red dots and it would get bigger all major cities starting with washington dc and they're like all right what do we do next uh you know mr president what do we do next and before like as he's making decisions there's another red dot another red dot and like all of the united states is like it was almost like a like a game he couldn't win. So he was sitting there watching and they were trying to figure out if he could make these decisions. Meanwhile, you have literally in front of him this interactive map that's just turning red, 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 red. And and that was very sombering for him. He was like, whoa, like this is this is this is like crazy. And that scared him a little bit, which but that was even before this. So it almost makes me think like you would think he would calm down a little bit, but he didn't, obviously. But from this point forward, I think this really sobered him up a little bit. You know, if you look at his foreign policy in his second term, because this is all happening during his first term. In his second term, he kind of takes his foot off the pedal a little bit. You know, he's more like, you know, like once Gorbachev becomes the Soviet general secretary, right? Um, you know, Gorbachev obviously is much more open to the West. He knows that the Soviet Union's economy is completely in disarray. They're producing less than half of what they were producing, Soviet Union, in 1950s. For a society where like two thirds were agricultural and more than half the people couldn't afford food, just you know, looking around, you realize that Soviet Union was imploding, like it was, it was falling apart. And you know, Ronald Reagan kind of takes his foot off the gas here, the pedal, and starts to really go to Mikhail Gorbachev and and say, "All right, let's figure this out. Let's let's talk peace." But by then, America's really talking peace from a position of strength, which as strength, we mentioned, yeah, they, they, they had to get glassing off all that stuff. They had to basically, you know, yeah, they had to change. They couldn't compete. And part of it was because they were trying to not only the war in Afghanistan, which I know we've talked about before in the podcast, but also just trying to keep up with capitalism. You can say whatever yeah. you want about it, but a communist society cannot keep up with a capitalist society. It's a, like, right. As far as like economically, it's just not it just doesn't work. This wasn't really declassified. So the National Security Archive, right, had this declassified because of the Freedom of Information Act that was requested yeah. in 2015. And it really wasn't until, like, U.S. Department didn't fully declassify this until February of 2021. Yeah, uh, that's when they figured out that um, – that's when they actually acknowledged that nuclear warheads were loaded onto bombers. Yeah. That's how close they got. Like, they, they – the Soviets really believed something was happening. You can say maybe they weren't going to launch, but they were getting prepared just in case. You don't put the bombers, you know, on high alert with, with loaded nuclear warheads ready to go. 
unless you believe something is happening. And there's been a lot of lessons learned from this. There's a lot of um, basically, the, like I said, the Americans and the Russians were like, all right, we have to have a bit more communications. We can't be calling each other evil. We can't look at each other that way because that's going to just rise the tension so much. Like you're just waiting for something to happen then. And you, think, you don't think the 80s is really a height of the Cold War, but they really, it, it boiled up big time in the 80s, without a doubt, especially yeah. the early 80s. Leonard Perutz, like, I mean, he's he's getting, I hope I'm saying his name right, right? Perutz, would you say? Per- Perutz, Perutz, yeah. Perutz. You know, the Air Force Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence. I mean, he he really should get a lot of credit, you know, just like as his Soviet counterpart a few years back for... You know, it's almost like you have a right man at the right time in the right position making the right choice where he could have easily said, all right, uh, Russians are building up. We need to respond. Meanwhile, he goes, no, let's just stop the training and see what happens. Like, again, cooler heads will prevail. Yeah, but he's, he, he kind of believes that maybe we are setting him off a little bit. If that's the case, that's not what this is about. You know, let's yeah. not. He's decided let's not poke the bear anymore. 11,000 warheads, Soviet warheads were put on maximum combat alert within two days. It's just one of those exercises, like you said, that almost leads to World War III. And you're talking about it now, like when Putin's talking about, you know, if this keeps up with, with the United States, you know, or any of the allies, um, they, what do you say? It's going to have consequence like you've never seen before. Right? So people are worried about what's going on there, although they're saying, like, listen, there's no way Putin's going to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Yeah. So it's just it's just like rising. It's just like that rising tension there. Like the U.S. is selling military aid to Ukraine. You know, they're not going to send troops on the ground there. But it's also just one of those things. Where could something be misinterpreted the wrong way? Like you don't want World War Three to start no matter what. But you definitely don't want it to start off like a miscommunication. Yeah, absolutely. That's Again, I think this is very sobering. Now. There are a lot of open channels now, even backdoor channels that we are not even aware of, where like individual generals and stuff are communicating with one another. I know that's something that happens a lot because they want to avoid these are lessons that they've learned from this, that there has to be constant communication between nuclear powers whenever there's some sort of war. And all the war games after this are kind of a, kind of like a announcement. Like they know it's going to happen. Like a lot of times when we anger North Korea and we're doing different war games and stuff like that, they know about it. Like we're going to be conducting maneuvers here or vice versa because they just want to make sure that nothing is interpreted the wrong way. It's funny because, you know, just as we're talking, I just Googled Putin – nuclear weapon, right? And top stories. Poland suggests hosting U.S. nuclear weapons amid growing fears of Putin's use of nuclear weapons. Uh, if Putin, opinion, New York Times, if Putin uses nuclear weapons, how should we? How should a world respond? Ukraine leader says Putin wouldn't survive nuclear attack. If Putin goes nuclear, the U.S. should avoid joining the war, says the Washington Post. This is like a live thing, you know? We'll yeah, it's a live thing. Use... It's, it's a trend. People are really legitly worried. And I guess whenever nuclear power gets into a conflict like this and he does like to talk that way, you know, like it's one thing when like, you know, Kim, the, Kim Jong-un and stuff talks that way, you know, he does have some nuclear capabilities. It's like a little bit different than when like a true nuclear power is talking about him. So crazy. This Russia has more nuclear weapons. They believe than the United States does at this. Yeah. Point. We did a podcast on it. Remember? Because yeah. they, they, they kept so many, they're, they're not sure how many are actually operational. But again, how many do you need? Right. Oh yeah. You know, you don't. It's again. I think they're the ones that he. They're saying he might use on Ukraine. That the arguing. I'm not. I'm not saying he's going to use it. Are more tactical, which are smaller. But again, what's a small nuclear weapon? You know. Wow, it's interesting because Putin keeps on even today reminding the world that the only only the United States so far in the world has, uh, used, has used nuclear weapons in battle, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and he keeps on saying like you you know you guys are judging me, but. 
like look in a mirror. It's, you know, it's a, it's definitely something to think about. That's for sure. Well, hopefully you won't have to make a podcast about nuclear weapons being used anytime soon. Well, no, um, then, then we're not making any more podcasts. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, yeah. We're, we're going to do the whole John Connor thing, you know, and then uh, try to fight the, with the resistance. But anyway, I think that pretty much concludes our podcast on Able Archer 83. I think this yeah, was a fun one. Look it, it up if, you have more, if you're curious about it. There's a lot of yeah. st- stuff out there. A lot of stuff is still coming out about it. So it's an interesting topic. And it's uh, one of those one. It just makes you think. Absolutely. It wasn't that long ago. wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and hopefully, like I said, uh, and like you said, you know, this, cause this is something that hasn't been talked about, but it probably should be talked about a lot more. Absolutely. So with that in mind, thank you everyone so much for tuning in once more to our podcast. We really appreciate it. If you need to find us, you could find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. If you have any questions, comments, or reactions, please feel free to shoot us an email. So thank you so much, guys. Have an awesome week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.